Welcome to the podcast for the Journal of the American Academy of Physician Assistants. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. There are so many new fun and exciting changes that I cannot wait to share with you in this month's podcast. Uh, the first is the title change of AAPA from the American Academy of Physician Assistants to the American Academy of Physician Associates with JAPA following suit. But second, and the most exciting, at least to me, um, is our two new co-hosts, Martine Altari and Kim Ketrasid. Ladies, it's such a pleasure to have you on as co-hosts, and I'm very excited for this upcoming journey. Thank you, Lena. Very excited as well to get to work with you and then to get to know all of our listeners and our audience. Thank you, Lena. I am as excited as Kim. Yeah. Um, and I'd also like to just take a moment to thank all of our applicants and uh, all of those that we interviewed. Thank you so much for your time. We had so many great applicants. And honestly, it just reaffirms the work ethic, uh, the quality and the talent of those who provide the PA profession. I also want to reassure all of our listeners out there, uh, we are going to make sure and make sure we make efforts to represent the male PAs on the podcast. Uh, we do recognize that we are all three cisgender females. Um, and although females are the majority in the PA profession, we, you know, again, want to make sure that everyone's voice is being heard and is being represented. With all that being said, let's get started with the podcast. Before we dive into our articles, let's take a moment to get to know our new co-hosts. Our listeners now know your names, but can you share with us where you're from, where you are now, and how long have you been a PA? Okay, I am originally from Haiti. I was born and raised in Haiti. I moved to Florida in um, about 14 years ago, and I've been a PA since 2010, so it's been a long journey. And I am currently podcasting from Richmond, Virginia, where it is also where I'm from. I was born and raised here, but have taken a tour of the East Coast uh, on my journey living in Atlanta, Georgia, and New Haven, Connecticut. I have been a PA since 2014, so about eight years. And ladies, can you tell us about your journey as a PA? Where did you go to PA school? Where are some of the places you've practiced? And what does your clinical practice look like now? Well... I have worked in various um, settings. I've been um, in urgent care. I have worked as a primary care PA. I, and I have been a hospitalist PA for the past seven years, and I recently transitioned to cardiology. And I, I work in both inpatient and outpatient setting in general cardiology. And our practice, um, have, um, if you want, we have a variety of um, subspecialties. Um, EP, interventional cardiology, general cardiology, and it, it's been a, it's been great so far. Thank you. Like Martine, I've practiced in a couple of different settings. My first job as a PA was in urology, where I was a first surgical first assist and also helped with patients on the floor. Then I transitioned over to hospital medicine, where I have practiced in two large academic medical centers. And then also in a critical access hospital in Southwest Virginia. Uh, I currently am practicing here in Richmond, Virginia, where I also wear a bit of an administrative hat. Uh, when I'm not practicing clinically, I help to oversee the transition to practice for new graduate PAs and NPs. Wow, we've got some powerhouses over here. <laughs> and then Martine, Kim, looking towards the future, what are some changes that you'd like to see in the PA profession? And how would you like to see the podcast contribute to these changes? 
Well, I would like to see first, I wanted to see the title change, which is happening um, into, with Physician Associate, like you mentioned earlier, um, Lina. But I also would like to see some changes in the PA practice in general, and hopefully one day we can get more states on board with OTP, breaking those barriers with some organizations to grant us the ability to practice at the top of our license without imposing so many restrictions. The way um, that I hope to achieve this is through advocacy for the profession. And I think with the podcast, we can empower PAs, letting our voices heard by inviting amazing and knowledgeable PAs to talk about their experience, expertise, and in some instance, their path as leaders in the healthcare industry. I truly believe that this podcast will give me the opportunity to make a difference by educating and informing the community and show that PAs go beyond because um, our role is not only to provide excellent patient care, but also to contribute to the profession by raising awareness in the community. Basically, I I hope to let people know who we are and what amazing work a lot of us are doing out there that often go unnoticed. This podcast can be used as a platform to promote the profession and hopefully our efforts can help educate orders about our profession and encourage the future generations of PA we can help extend this new PAs go beyond brand messaging and show how PAs do that too. Martine, you said it so beautifully. I agree with all that you shared. Thank you. Uh, Some foreshadowing for later in our podcast, Lena's going to be reviewing an article that said, uh, many PAs choose to go into where they practice, make an opportunity and the difference in patient quality of life. I think this podcast is a vehicle not only to reinforce our clinical skills, but also as a platform for advocacy that PAs can practice optimally and efficiently, just as Martine described. Thank you. And lastly, ladies, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about you? Sure. I am a mother of a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. My daughter is nine and my son is seven. And when I'm not at a soccer practice or at a swim meet, you're going to find me with a book or traveling, which are my favorite hobbies and spending time with my family. So besides bringing you up-to-date clinical pearls and my and now this new hobby, the, the, the podcast that I bring to you, and those are my favorite things to do. You would find me with a good historical fiction book. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. And Kim, what about you? I am married to a PA. Shout out to my husband, Patrick. And I am also a mom and a runner. I have a toddler. And fun fact, I ran a half marathon when I was pregnant with her. And I know, although y'all listen to my voice and it may be hard to see, I am currently pregnant and I have run a full marathon while pregnant with this current pregnancy. Wow. Uh, I'm not pregnant and cannot do either one of those things. So (laughs) kudos to you. (laughs) I'm jealous too. Martine, where's your favorite place to travel? Just about anywhere, but I I love the mountains. I love the beach. So a little bit of everything, but I like to experience new cultures, learning about new stuff. History is my passion. That's why I mentioned that I loved um, historical fiction. So anything that will enrich my vision of the world, if you want. Thanks for sharing, ladies. Um, And I can't wait again to see what the future holds for the three of us. I'm sure it's going to be fun. And I hope our listeners are excited because they're probably in for a ride. (laughs) So (laughs) now let's take a look um, at the articles that we'll be reviewing in this episode. Uh, We'll be reviewing articles on the use of DOACs for AFib and valvular heart disease, 
What providers need to know about continuous glucose monitors and job attributes desired by healthcare providers to work in rural, medically underserved areas. Before we get started, our quick disclaimer. This podcast is a summary of selected articles from this month's edition. We share our take and opinions, which do not represent JAPA, the authors, the publisher, or the editor's opinions. This is not intended as medical advice. And don't forget to claim your Category 1 CME after reading this month's CME articles. Go to cme.aapa.org and take the CME post-test. It's at the bottom of the page. When you score at least a 70%, you earn a Category 1 CME. Martine, take us away. All right. I'm going to review, as Lena mentioned, a pharmacology content article from the September job issue on direct acting oil anticoagulants, or DOACs, in patients with atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease. The reason I chose um, this article to present to you is because of the prevalence of patients in the population with atrial fibrillation and the importance of stroke prevention in these patients with all anticoagulants. In fact, a study published in the American Journal of Cardiology revealed that the atrial fibrillation incidence will double from 1.2 million cases in 2010 to 2.6 million cases in 2030. Given this increase in incidence, Atrial fibrillation prevalence is projected to increase from 5.2 million in 2010 to 12.1 million cases in 2030. With that said, direct acting oral anticoagulants are an effective alternative to warfarin for patients with atrial fibrillation required thromboembolic risk reduction. I want to provide a little bit of background about warfarin. So warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist which has been the gold standard in stroke prevention for patients with AFib for many decades, but is associated with numerous adverse effects. People were achieving therapeutic INR only in about 60% of the time, therefore DOLAX may be a better alternative. This article emphasizes on a very important guideline and discusses the newly acceptable use of DOLAX in patients with valvular AFib, including native valvular heart disease and patients with bioprosthetic valves. For thromboembolic risk reduction in patients with AFib, DOAX, what we call the DOAX, we have apixaban, rivaloxaban, dabigatran, for example, are preferred alternatives to warfarin, given there are fewer drug and food interactions and that patients do not need routine blood monitoring or dose adjustments. Basically, the efficacy and safety profile of these agents have been established in four large randomized clinical trials comparing each DOAC to warfarin for stroke prevention in patients with AFib. However, these studies had a limited number of patients with valvular heart disease defined as damage to or defect of a cardiac valve, and this also included patients with bioprosthetic valves. Only two of these trials enrolled patients with bioprosthetic mitral valves. Subgroup analysis showed no statistical difference between the incidence of stroke systemic embolism or bleeding among trial participants from either arm. Because of the lack of data about DOAC safety and efficacy in patients with valvular heart disease, the FDA did approve these drugs in patients with non-valvular AFib initially. Considering this subgroup analysis, recently the ACC AHA guidelines presented DOACs as an acceptable alternative to vitamin K antagonists in patients with native valvular heart disease and bioprosthetic valve placed more than three months prior to initiation of therapy, excluding patients with rheumatic mitral stenosis and mechanical heart valve just because these have greater baseline risk of thromboembolic events. 
I'm going to give a little bit of description of the study. The goal of the trial was to assess the safety and efficacy of rivaloxaban compared with warfarin for patients with valvoprostatic mitral valve and evidence of AFib or flutter. What was the study design? The patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one open label fashion to either rivaloxaban with dosing depending on renal function, either 15 or 20 milligram, or warfarin with an INR goal of two to three. The total number of enrollees was 1,005. The trial did include adults with either permanent or persistent AFib or A-flutter and bioprosthetic mitral valve placed at least 48 hours prior to enrollment in the trial. The exclusion criteria included the presence of a mechanical heart valve amongst others. The primary outcome studied was either a composite of death, major cardiovascular events, or major bleeding at 12 months. And the main secondary outcome was also death from cardiovascular causes or thromboembolic events. The safety outcomes monitored were bleeding events or of varying clinical significance. So what were um, the principal findings from that study? What they did find was that the mean time until the occurrence, for example, of a primary event was 7.4 days longer in the rifaroxaban group compared with the warfarin group. At 12 months, the secondary outcomes that were being monitored, like we mentioned, the thromboembolic events that occurred in only 3.5% of the rivaroxaban group compared with 5.1% of the warfarin group. They also noted that strokes occurred in only three participants in the rifaroxaban group compared with 12 in the warfarin group. The rifaroxaban group had no incidences of hemorrhagic strokes, while five were identified in the warfarin group. In terms of safety, the incidence of major bleeding in the first 12 months was not significantly different between the two groups. So what is the takeaway here? After all, those findings from the study do have a potential to be practiced changing for patients with bioprosthetic mitral valves and AFib, given the difficulty of maintaining a therapeutic INR on warfarin. The only group to be cautious with is the rheumatic valve disease group with atrial fibrillation, as we do not know the original indication for the mitral valve surgery, although it was noted that a relevant proportion of the patients had rheumatic disease. There is room for future research, as we need more subgroup analysis to study the safety and efficacy of rivaroxaban in patients with concomitant rheumatic heart disease and AFib following valvular replacement. In a nutshell, we can conclude from this river trial that rivaroxaban is non-inferior to warfarin in both efficacy and safety in the patient with bioprosthetic mitral valve and atrial fibrillation requiring anticoagulation. The use of direct oral anticoagulants might be a safe and acceptable alternative to warfarin in this patient population. Of note, all strokes were lower with rivaroxaban. This is one of the first trials to directly evaluate the role of a direct all anticoagulant in patients with mitral valve disease and atrial arrhythmias. Historically, these patients have been treated with warfarin with all the risk and inconvenience that we mentioned. Although this trial has limitations, being an open label design, et cetera, these findings are likely to be practice changing for the clinician. The only caveat is that it is unclear if the mitral valve surgery was for rheumatic heart disease, in particular mitral stenosis, where warfarin is still recommended as the oral anticoagulant of choice. I don't know um, for you guys, but for me, this is great news. And if we can now use the DOAX in patients with valvular AFib as well to prevent strokes, I think it's, it, we make great strides. Um, we would not be so limited. And it is 
way easier to manage the patients that way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, there's like a lot of pros and cons, you know, for patients who are elderly and uh, have difficulty with transportation, having get their INR checked so frequently, um, this kind of eliminates that. But on the other end, DOACs are so expensive. Um, and especially for patients without insurance or under insurance, just a small, I had a don't, my grandmother's on Rifoxaban and there was a little blip with her insurance and just to pay out of pocket for it for a month supply was with good RX coupon was like over $500. So I think it's a matter of just the cost. Everything else I think is a great idea. I think the only other thing too is sometimes it's difficult to reverse it if, if needed in an emergency, but still can be done. Yes, I agree. Yes, it's the only downfall, the cost, and because you're branded, branded medications, but they, they have made a lot of efforts. Um, Medicare covers a lot, some of them. You just have to be very creative and find which insurance covers which drug, but definitely this is um, this is the downfall with these medications. I agree that it's exciting to find populations that the DOAX would be indicated for. It's definitely been one of those, you know, years ago is when can we use these with patients with end-stage renal disease? And one of the big questions has been for valvular AFib. So I think it's a, a great note of optimism. As y'all had mentioned, the big caveat being cost of the medication. I do wonder, as rivaroxaban was the only DOAC mentioned in this river study, if Eliquis and Dibigatran also mm-hmm. had similar results. Um, and that could, I guess, be a potential option for future studies. Yes, I'm pretty sure. Yes, this study involved only Rivaxpan, but I'm pretty sure there are more studies coming up in the pipeline. Something to look out for. Would you ladies change your practice based on these results or convince your supervising your practice to change how they do things? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I would definitely have the discussion and mention the river trial because I love saying these trial names. makes us sound extra smart (laughs) yes (laughs) yes for sure so to hop into our second review article i'll be discussing seven facts you need to know about continuous glucose monitors by laura solano laura is a pa practicing in fort worth texas and i identified an area where many of us in our practice have some room to learn about some new technologies on the market Lena and Martine, have y'all had any experience with continuous glucose monitors? Nope. <laughs> no, me personally, I have not um, prescribed it. I've seen it being used. I've seen patients coming to, to my office with them, um, but I don't personally have any experience. So that's why I'm excited to learn about them. So I was surprised to learn that continuous glucose monitors were first approved by the FDA in 1999 and have been around for over 20 years. However, their use has become more widespread in the last couple of years. To be honest, like y'all, it wasn't really my experience to have a lot of exposure to these devices until COVID. Um, I remember at my institution when the pandemic first started, we were all like, what are we going to do about COVID positive patients with DKA? And at my institution, continuous glucose monitors were proposed as a potential solution. I feel like I now routinely field questions from my diabetic patients about whether they can get one and how they can get one. So let's jump into seven facts that we all need to know as PAs about continuous glucose monitoring. So fact number one, how do continuous glucose monitors work? First, they 
take continuous readings of glucose levels obtained from a sensor in the interstitium. This is in contrast to the capillary blood test that we all know, where they get a test from the blood and it measures something at one point in time. Capillary blood tests, the tests that we're familiar with, have results immediately available. One thing to take note of is that continuous glucose monitor results may take up to 45 minutes. Continuous glucose monitors monitor glucose levels while patients are sleeping, while capillary blood tests can typically only be drawn when the patient is awake. Do want to dive a little bit further into how they work by describing the two types of continuous glucose monitors. You have flash and non-flash continuous glucose monitors. Flash monitors, like the Freestyle Libre, must be scanned to obtain results, and they do not alarm if the glucose is out of range. Non-flash continuous glucose meters use a receiver that is connected over Bluetooth and does alert when the glucose is out of range. Number two, how do continuous glucose monitors benefit patients and providers? Number one, and most excitingly, less finger sticks. Number two, they also reveal important information about peaks and troughs in glucose levels that may not be revealed on an A1C. Patients can also see glucose responses to different types of foods, which may lead to behavior change. Fact number three, continuous glucose monitoring limitations. I was surprised to learn about a couple of these. First, patients with continuous glucose monitors cannot get an MRI, CT, radiograph, or diathermy, as these studies may damage the device. Second, certain medications may interfere with readings, such as vitamin C, salicylic acid, and acetaminophen. And lastly, patients wearing a continuous glucose monitor cannot go through traditional airport security scans. Number four, how do continuous glucose monitors affect outcomes? Studies have, been, have shown that they reduce A1C and decrease hypoglycemic events. Number five, who benefits? There's a variety of recommendations from several important national organizations. I'm gonna highlight two. CMS, or the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, is that patients with diabetes type one and two who need to check a, a capillary blood test four or more times a day, or need three or more insulin injections or use an insulin pump may benefit. The ADA takes things a little bit more broadly and says anyone who requires frequent glucose monitoring would benefit from a continuous glucose monitor. Number six, cost. The cost of these devices depend on insurance, sensor duration, insertion fee, and if a receiver is required. Cost ranges from $105 to $2,500. Number seven, how accurate are continuous glucose monitors? Continuous glucose monitors are measured in MARDs, or mean absolute relative difference, and the MARDs do vary by device. However, you should also take note that capillary blood tests also vary in accuracy. The article brought up test strips are stored and levels of dehydration will affect the accuracy, even in the tests that we're very familiar with. So Lena and Martine, are y'all convinced? Do you think continuous glucose monitor devices are the wave of the future? I think so. I mean, it would definitely help with compliance and behavior change, like you mentioned. I think for me being in hospital medicine, the only um, downfall there is they can't, and no imaging, no radiographs, no CTs, MRIs, you know, I think we're used to with pacemakers and ICDs, but you know, if something 
you, you know, you need to do imaging. <laughs> That's kind of hard um, to determine, but, you know, I think it's a good thing because I think patients, you know, they don't want to be sticking themselves. I wouldn't want to be sticking myself frequently. Um, so, yeah. I think I'm so bad, but I agree with Lena. I, I'm only afraid of that limitation for some certain patients, but I think it would work great for kids because kids mm -hmm. will be afraid of, you know, the needle stick every so often and it, they cannot tell you about their symptoms. Um, so especially kids with type 1 diabetes, I think that that's a great alternative and they're not going to require probably as many imaging studies as, you know, an elderly patient would need. So yeah, I think that there's a... They, but they need to work on the pricing though. It's always, it always goes back to the cost. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I don't think they're at a point yet to completely replace the capillary blood test that we're all familiar with. One big reason is because the results of these monitors aren't immediately available. So if you have an emergent hypoglycemic event, you still need to get blood glucose testing. Mm. But I do think there's room for optimism. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I wonder if any patients would be skeptical. I don't know. Like some patients are like, I don't want anything just staying inside of me, or I don't want to, you know, with insertion, if it's like a procedure, if that would be something to hold them back. Actually, the answer is yes. I, I, I tried with my husband. I'm like, uh, because I was reading the article in preparation of the podcast and I'm like, oh, wouldn't you like something like this? Don't you think it's cool? We can just can't, he's like, nope. I don't want something <laughs> inside and because I'm, I, I'm like, I know you don't like needle sticks. So don't you think it's a good alternative? And they're like, but they have to put it in. It's still going to hurt. So no, I, I'll pass. Oh man, I kind of thought the same thing. And I also thought, man, my smart devices know everything about me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they now know my blood glucose levels too. Yeah. I was just <laughs> kind of thinking like with the COVID vaccine, everyone's like, oh, it's going to put a chip in you. And then, you know, and it's like, well, now that you literally have a device that you can scan, people really, you know, might really be skeptical about that. That's kind of hard to. I'm sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. For our next article we're going to be reviewing is titled Job Attributes Valued by Physicians, PAs, and NPs, a Cross-Sectional Survey. The authors have disclosed no potential conflicts of interest, financial or otherwise. This article explored which job attributes would attract physicians, PAs, and NPs to practice in rural settings. Currently, 20%, which is about 60 million Americans, live in rural areas. However, according to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, about 11% of primary care PAs, NPs, and physicians practice in large rural areas, and less than 10% work in small rural or remote rural areas. And just for context, a large rural area has a population of 10,000 to 50,000. A small rural area has 2,500 to 9,999, and a remote rural area has a population of less than 2,500. What's alarming is the disparity in the distribution of healthcare providers has led to an increase in morbidity, mortality, and cost as patients from rural areas are forced to travel farther to access care. And as the article also mentions, the New England Journal of Medicine found that this disparity is actually becoming worse uh, as clinicians in rural towns are aging and beginning to retire at a faster rate than clinicians in urban areas. Uh, talk about burnout. Um, of note, according to HRSA, between 2010 and 2021, 138 rural hospitals closed and 45 of these facilities were critical access hospitals. 
an attempt to minimize this issue, according to the article, research efforts have focused on finding personal traits or quote unquote, the right type of person who will practice in a rural area. However, this article that we're gonna be reviewing today focuses on the job attributes that will actually attract healthcare providers and how these attributes differ between PAs, NPs, and physicians. For the methods, a survey was sent to clinicians who are registered to precept PA students at one of the three Wake Forest institutions located in West Virginia or North Carolina. Respondents determined the importance of 17 job attributes using a five-point Likert scale. The attributes included practice specialty, making a difference in the patient's quality of life, work hours, benefits, salary, autonomy, state scope of practice, quality of life, recreational and cultural opportunities, climate and geography, employment opportunities for their significant other, community characteristics, quality of schools, opportunity for educational or student loan repayment, going back to where they're from or to their family or where they were raised, and the wealth or prestige of living in a certain area. Now, before we get into how clinicians rank these categories, let's take a look at the personal attributes of the respondent pool. 134 preceptors completed the survey. 56% of the respondents were females in their 40s. 86% were white, 5% were Asian, 3% were black, and less than 1% were Latinx or American Indian or Alaska Native. Uh, and 69% of the respondents were married and 50% had a child that was less than 18 years old. Researchers also looked at the background in regard to the type of area that the respondents were raised in. 47% were raised in a suburban area. 41% were raised in a rural area, which I was surprised when I read that. Um, and 11% were raised in an urban area. And as far as current practice, majority of respondents were actually practicing in a suburban area, so 48% of them. And then lastly, majority of the respondents were PAs, 55%, 33% um, were physicians, and 11% were nurse practitioners. Now, Kim and Martine, what do you think were the top three job attributes selected? If I'm thinking about what, <laughs> if I'm thinking about what would attract me, if, if, if you ask me, I would say benefits, salary, and quality of life, I would say. I think first I would say opportunity to make a difference in patient's quality of life. And then I would look at work hours and benefits and salary would be tied for number three. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering what you guys were thinking. For me, I was thinking, uh, for me, educational or student loan repayment uh, would be in my top three, maybe not necessarily number one, uh, but it would be, be up there um, along with salary. And I, I definitely would want to be able to make a difference in the patient's quality of life. Um, I was surprised by the results, so hold on to your seatbelts if you're listening to this in the car. <laughs> uh, the top three across all three clinicians were practice specialty, opportunity to make a difference in the patient's quality of life, and work hours. And benefits and salary were uh, following that, but I was surprised that benefits and salary weren't higher up. What are your thoughts? I agree. I hear a lot of my coworkers talk mostly about benefits and salary now, so I would, I'm very surprised. Same thing. I'm, I would be very surprised. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, what's even more surprising is the quality of life and opportunity for educational and student loan repayment. They were so far down. <laughs> um, and the last three were wealth and prestige of living in a certain area, going back to their hometown or to family, um, an opportunity for loan repayment. Another thing that was interesting, there was actual statistical significance uh, between the ratings between clinicians for student loan repayment with physicians rating that the lowest, a 2.57, basically on average a two for the Likert scale and PAs and NPs rated that as like a three. So it was still kind of important to them, but physicians say had no interest in that. Now, of course, there are some factors to consider, like the small sample size, majority of the respondents were married. So I'm wondering if that had uh, anything to do with salary and benefits where you have another person's income you can maybe combine with or another person could uh, have benefits with. Also, clinicians were only surveyed from two different states in the same region of the country. And additionally, majority of the respondents were female and, right, and were white. So those are things to consider as well. I kind of wanted to bring some points in from an article that the, uh, this article actually mentioned. It's titled Recruiting Rural Healthcare Providers Today, a Systematic Review on tr of Training Program Success and Determinants of Geographic Choices. So I wanted to mention this article from 2017. So the data is pretty recent, but some of the determinants they found clinicians faced when it came to practicing in rural settings are uh, having a wide knowledge base to treat a diversity of illnesses. Obviously there's less providers in that area. And so you're kind of being a jack of all trades, which can kind of seem intimidating, I think, especially too for, especially new grads. And I think too, it could be scary when you get set in your ways and you have colleagues you can rely on and consult with, and that's kind of taken away and you're kind of running the show there. Uh, but also having a wide skill set when it comes to performing procedures, um, where sometimes you might have minimal to no specialized training to kind of help your patient out. Um, as again, certain you know, specialty centers might be miles and hours away for your patient. And depending on how severe the condition is, they may not even be able to access those. And so when looking at factors that encourage providers, though, to practice in rural areas, they did find a positive association when they uh, were practicing due to a loan or scholarship obligation um, or medical school loan repayment. However, the amount of loan debt or having loan debt at all uh, was not a factor when it came to if someone decided to practice in a rural setting. Um, there were several other factors that this article looked at. Uh, but those are the, I was really curious about the effect of student loan repayment um, on practice. I couldn't find anything on HRSA's or uh, any data out there on how many clinicians are actually receiving the loan repayment scholarship for working in a rural setting, because I kind of want to see how much that really helps and draws in clinicians as well. I have some suggestions in my mind for how to kind of tackle this, but what are your thoughts, ladies? Um, one thing I was thinking about is the reason that there's this, dif this difference in the ranking, especially with the student loan repayment between physicians and PAs. I think they use a lot of foreign graduates and these physicians, they, or they sometimes they use the um, physicians on J1 visa or H1B visas. They do not have loans. So they do not, they did not study in the United States. They don't have those gigantic loans that people who study here, who go to medical school here tend to have. So it doesn't matter to them. It's not that important. 
And they, they, that's why you're going to see the ranking of making the difference in patients' lives is the number one, because when you go to the rural areas, that's what you want to do. These people don't have access to a lot of services and you want to be there for them. So I think that's the major, that's, that's their major, major driving these in the rural areas. So I think that's why we see this difference. But um, so I don't think the loan repayment in that case unless you want to hire an EPA to rank that number one is the only um, attract, attractive thing you could offer um, to, for people to go. I, I mean, you have to, first of all, a lot of people go, go back to the rural areas because they have some ties, family ties. Mm -hmm. And you, you have to have that drive, that wanting to give back. So someone wants to give back to the community, they will definitely go regardless of what the salary or remuneration would be. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the article did touch on that. So thank you for bringing that up, Martine. You know, Lena, you brought up some very good points and it's something that I chew on actually pretty frequently. So as I alluded to in my introduction, I have experience working in a rural environment I practiced as a PA in a critical access hospital in Southwest Virginia, so in Appalachia, coal country. And as mentioned in the review article from 2017, one of the biggest challenges that I had was the wide, wide knowledge base that was needed to treat a diversity of illnesses. I came prior to practicing at this critical access hospital from an, a large academic health center in New England where you have had access to every specialist procedure test immediately at your fingertips and any question you could call out and ask a consultant. And when I was practicing in this rural environment, it actually caused me a lot of moral distress knowing that these patients didn't have the exact same access to that care that I had seen when I was in New Haven. Um, this, I don't think, I think it should be addressed as a reason why people might not longitudinally stay in an area. I did think it was interesting that this survey, you know, only pointed to one point in time. I wonder if these factors would change as mm -hmm. these preceptors are at different points in their careers. And I'm even curious at what point in their career they are. Maybe if they're in the beginning, they might have different, um, they might rate things differently than they were if they were 20 years into clinical practice. Yeah, those are really good. Points. Yeah, uh, and especially too, as new grads, you know, as the PA professions moving younger and younger when it comes to graduates, you know, I think practicing in a rural area, technically I'm not, I guess it's a small urban area, but we're very close to some really rural areas. Like my grandparents are from, I don't know if any listeners from Crisfield, Maryland. <laughs> I was curious, I was, it's like less than 25, it's about 2,500 people. Um, there's two doctors there. And I think it takes also a lot of just life knowledge to be able to manage your patients. They're dealing with some real life social determinants of health that uh, sometimes, you know, if you're coming from a you know city and you're going went straight through school, you may not have any clue of how to get creative with uh, working around those um, those issues as well. Um, and kind of what you brought up, Kim, is you know again the moral. Uh, weight that you feel it's like, oh my gosh, am I doing enough? I feel bad because I can't do what I need to do. Um, and I, I think it would be great for whether it's in residencies or fellowships or, um, or even, you know, I don't know, stipend for some providers from metropolitan areas nearby to come in like once a week to see patients um, or to train 
some of the clinicians to, you know, these are some new things that we're finding work well with our patients. Let's work on how to act, get you access, or this is a new procedure. Can we just spend a couple hours in the OR so we can, you know, uh, practice these things or to teach you some skills um, or, or grants to send providers to, I don't know, sessions or, or something of the sort to increase training. Um, I think also to having more pipelines from students from rural communities. Uh, I don't think people really recognize sometimes how hard it is, I think, to get out of those rural communities. Um, and so, uh, you know, and to, you know, get the far away, the remote, there's training programs are, you know, expensive. Um, and I think, you know, it's kind of like we need to recruit, same thing with the, you know, diversity. It's like we need to recruit more people from that, you know, from the same background. Um, and I think that's true as well. Um, and I think telehealth has really kind of helped us out a bit with this. Do you think though there's state by state, there's still some red tape when it comes to practicing telehealth across states? Uh, however, according to telehealth.hhs.gov, providers can deliver telehealth services across state lines, depending on the rules set by the state and federal policies. I think this is really great. Um, and it kind of cuts down on the travel time for patients. Uh, if they know they need a special procedure for cardiology or something like that, they can consult and meet with the provider um, from the comfort and you know, accessibility of their home. And then you know, when it's time to go in for the procedure or do some tests, they can come in for that and they're minimizing the time they're taking out for travel. Yes, definitely. And this, have, this has been a trend, especially now they do a lot of telepsych, neurology, cardiology, yes. And before they, they, can, they can move, at least they can be seen by, by a provider. I think telehealth has broken a lot of those barriers and making things easier. But we definitely need more work to attract more people, encourage people to go back to their communities. And with scholarships, for example, NCCPA mm -hmm. offers those scholarships for PAs who want to practice in rural areas. And I think it encourages them and, and incentivize them to go back. I agree, I agree. I don't wanna to speak too soon, but I do think that one of the silver linings from the COVID pandemic was how widely adopted telehealth has become. And we all learned on how to move quickly and to introduce these into our environments and our practice settings. And I think the other thing the COVID pandemic did was to show how social determinants effect of health did affect outcomes. So our rural areas were areas that were very, uh, struck very hard by the pandemic. So hopefully we can use some of the points that everyone has brought up to be able to address the problems that the pandemic put so bluntly in front of us. Yeah, totally. Thank you, ladies. And thank you, everyone, to our listeners out there for joining us for another episode. Welcome again, Kim and Martine. Can't wait for our next episodes. And stay tuned because we have some exciting things coming up. Yes, we are cooking up something special for PA Week. Be sure to tune in and to tell your friends. But in the meantime, please be sure that you are following JAPA on social media at J-A-A-P-A online. Let us know your thoughts about the topic um, we went over today. And until next time. Bye.